you know, the rest of our life, the rest of my life is going to be a a world of comparison. And I have to figure out kind of how to make that comparison work in my advantage and just understand that there are some people that are going to be great at things and we need to stand in awe of their blessing, right? And, And look at the better things that they are putting out in the world that may not be my jam. But to know that they are also looking at me in the same way. Do you believe in hope? Cause I am hopeless. Do you believe in love? Cause I'm alone. Do you believe in hell? Cause I am hell. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. I uh, want to give you guys a bit of an update if you listen to the last episode. Obviously, uh, um, trying to give some back, you know, back background information on on uh, why the episodes have been coming out a little bit more slowly than usual. So um, I'm usually pretty good at uh, handling a, a lot of things happening simultaneously, but even for me, this is a bit a bit much. Uh, both my parents are, are kind of in ill health right now. Uh, they're both chugging along, but uh, my mom just had major, uh, pretty major cancer surgery and is in the process of recovering before uh, she's due to start her chemotherapy uh, to hopefully get rid of anything that may remain. Uh, but having some kind of bumps in the road along the way and, and kind of dealing with those. Uh, my dad, not to be outdone, uh, also needs to have some uh, pretty major heart surgery. And so, uh, that has not been scheduled yet, but is going to be happening, uh, fairly soon. So lots going on with my parents. Um, and then as I was getting ready to go up to, uh, to stay with them, uh, while my mom was getting ready to have surgery, I got COVID a second time. Cause you know, uh, I didn't have enough on my plate at that point, And I thought I want to get the high score at life right now. So, um, so yeah, so second round of that, um, and, and then, finally was able to recover timing wise. It worked out. Okay. I got to go up with my daughter and, uh, spend some time with my folks and, um, return the favor of all those years of taking care of me. Um, it was kind of nice to be able to go up and cook and help out and stuff. So, um, so yeah, so if you could keep my parents in your thoughts, uh, your prayers, your good vibes, whatever. Um, and yeah, just, just lots going on. So all that being said, uh, this is the last episode I have recorded at the moment, and so uh, more than likely going to take September off so that I can, um, you know, obviously deal with the 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 life stuff, but also have some um, episodes that are being scheduled as we speak, and so in an effort to be able to like not overwhelm myself and uh, also get you guys content for the rest of the year. I'm just going to take it kind of slow for now, but um, what a good episode! Uh, to end on before I take a slight hiatus, um, this one recorded a while ago and, uh, been excited to, to release it. So Tyler Merritt, uh, if you don't know who he is, I don't know where you've been. Uh, the man just does a little bit of everything. He's just a Jack of all trades and just one of those people you meet where you're like, this guy's amazing. Just a kind, kind human being. And uh, just funny and just fun to talk to. And we had such a good conversation. Um, talked for a while before we even started recording. Uh, just a genuinely good human being. And so uh, if you haven't seen his his videos that have made him famous, uh, he had uh, a couple that went viral, including the big one, uh, Before You Call the Cops, uh, that was also showed on Jimmy Kimmel. And uh, he runs the Tyler Merritt, Merritt Project. Uh, he's involved in a whole host of other things. So let me just read you his bio. I think this one's worth hearing. 
So Tyler Merritt is an actor, musician, comedian, and activist behind the Tyler Merritt Project. Raised in Los Angeles, he has always had a passion for bringing laughter, grace, and love into any community that he is able to be a part of. For over 20 years now, he has spoken to audiences ranging from elementary school students to nursing home seniors. His television and credit his television in credits. Let me try that again. His television credits include ABC's Kevin Probably Saves the World, Netflix's Messiah, Netflix's Outer Banks, Disney Marvel's Falcon in the Winter Soldier, and Apple TV's upcoming series Swagger. Tyler's viral videos Before You Call the Cops and Walking While Black have been viewed by over 60 million people worldwide, with Before You Call the Cops being voted the number one most powerful video of 2020 by Now This Politics. He is a cancer survivor who lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and just an all-around amazing human being. Uh, I uh, had the pleasure of listening to the audio version of his book. Uh, typically, I read the book. Uh, for those of you guys who've listened to the podcast for years, know that I love a hard copy, so I can highlight it and write notes in it. Um, but this time, I was told, like, you really got to get the audio book. It's something special. And I'm telling you, it is unlike any audio book I've ever heard. We talk about that in the interview. But he really uh, just brings life into this thing. It's not like your typical, like, we've hired a guy with a cool British accent to read the words that somebody else wrote. No. He narrates his own story, and really, it, it feels like he's telling you his life story. It's got uh, beautiful moments in it all throughout. Uh, you know, he'll, he'll bring you to tears, also make you laugh and everything in between. It's just an incredibly well-produced audiobook. So, highly recommend uh, but if you, if you got to read it, obviously the, the book itself is amazing too. So check it out, follow the work that Tyler does and, uh, you know, all the scoop. So, and where to find everything, uh, website is updated, www.thedeconstructionist.com. It's got everything you need to know about the podcast on there and all the links to everything. So if you want to support us, uh, you can find links to support us with through that website. Otherwise, uh, rate and review us if you could. Uh, subscribe so you don't miss a new episode. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who listens to the podcast and supports in any way that you can. Uh, especially love the, the um, emails and the, and the messages. Um, really appreciate the, the support. So thank you guys. And without further ado, I give you Tyler freaking Merritt. I'm from myself and no one's left. Tell my tale. My ship has sunk to my surprise. Welcome to the podcast, and uh, I really appreciate it, man. I know we had some schedule stuff this morning, but thanks for so much for being on today. Yo, we are going to have a good time. This is going to be the best podcast you have ever had in your life, John. I feel that. I do. I think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell people a little bit. Uh, obviously, you've got a you've got a bunch of stuff going on, but tell people a little bit about your background and, and what you do. Sure, man. Um, I guess it's simply simply put, I'm an actor, activist, author, and um, I say that I am a full time encourager, which I, I hope to be, and a lover of all people as much as I possibly can be. Um, but right now, the, probably the forefront of my life is my book. I take my coffee black. That's out. Um, reflections on Tupac musical theater faith and being black in America. So if you're listening and you can't see or there's no pictures, I'm a black man. I'm a beautiful black cocoa colored mocha, mocha like dreadlocked with with salt and pepper bearded 
So right now you're thinking Idris Elba, right? And I, I want you to think 10 times sexier with a splash <laughs> of Denzel. And that, my friends, is what you have in your listening to today. So that's it. So take I, that I image in your confirm. head and hide your girlfriends. <laughs> can confirm. I can see him and you cannot. So uh, Google, Google it now. Um, I love it, man. So y- you, um, this book is, first of all, it's amazing. Uh, second of all, uh, I, I thank Shauna again for uh, not only referring the book to me, but saying, you got to listen to the audiobook version of this. And we were talking about this before we recorded, but it is different than any audiobook I've ever heard in all the best ways. Like, there's so much personality into it. So, talk about like how that came to happen. I'll tell you, man, my publisher and uh, Hachette Audio basically said, have your way with the audiobook. And I even make a joke about it at the very beginning at the top of the audiobook. So most audiobooks start with like, Hachette presents, blah, 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 or Audible, you know. <clears throat> and I cut in pretty much at the top of the audiobook. And I start talking to the engineer whose name is Jen. And I go, wait, Jen, 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 wait, wait, can I do whatever I want? She's like, yeah, I mean, sure, why not? And I'm like, all right, let's go. And um, I end up making her, who she's a um, white woman, She's actually a white lesbian woman. I love her to death. And I make her a kind of a part of the audiobook. I bring her into the moment with me because I wanted the audience to be very aware that I was aware, they were aware, we're all aware that I'm reading this thing, right? But in kind of actor form, I wanted to take you from kind of this loose experience of just hearing me tell the story. Then by the end, you feel like you're wrapped into it. Like it's no longer just an audio book, but it's like you and I walking through my life together in a real and honest way. And some of the replies and responses I got from the audiobook, which I love are, <laughs> I'll be running three miles, Tyler, and then you will make me run a fourth. Like, I don't want to stop listening to it. So I'll keep running or I'll have soccer moms who write me and they're like, Tyler, the amount of times I've sat in my driveway and listened to three more chapters. <laughs> so I not only didn't have to go back in the house with my kids, but I also just wanted to listen. Um, and uh, the other thing that I hear, which I think is super sweet, but um, I, I think was unexpected, is how many people have said it's really hard to get into another audiobook after this one. You know, um, and I think that's oftentimes because most authors, if they're reading them themselves, they feel like I just have to read it through, you know. And I went in like, no. So we added sound effects, and you know, I got Jimmy Kimmel on it, and my mom and my dad, and. Uh, my best friend, James Earl Iglehart, who's a Tony winner. So, I mean, you, you've listened to it now. So, you know, we just kind of go, we just go hard on the whole thing. So I appreciate you bringing that up. So, d- so I, I always think it's important on a podcast for the, the person who's running the podcast to give a true and honest, like, no BS um, um, concept and idea to their listeners on how they really felt about the book. I know you were like, I really dig it. It's great. But I'm asking you, how did you from top to bottom going through and it's okay. I, I we're far enough away that my big blackness will not knock you out if you're like, it sucked. But, <laughs> but what, what, how did you, how, how did you feel about the entirety of, of the experience of the book in general? I mean, I'll say this too, because I've told other guests this too. When I really like a book, I will, I will absolutely tell you, um, I don't, you know, I don't like blowing smoke just for, you know, uh, 
just for the sake of like telling the guest, oh, the book was great. Because I'll be honest, like there are a lot of great academics who are brilliant, but their books are dry as dry can be. Sure, sure. And then there are other people who are just gifted at at telling a story. And that's the way I felt when I read your book, because you wove together so many different aspects. Like you, it's very obviously deeply personal. Uh, it's a story about your childhood through current day. It's a story about what it means to be a black man in America. And it's also a story about, you know, you also plug in history, which the history nerd me was like, yeah, bring it. I like it. <laughs> but like you also factor in like this very important, these very important historical facts that play into today. Cause I think one of the things, and I'd love to talk to you about this, obviously is, you know, some of the things that you bring up happened a long time ago, right? Like some right. of these laws and some of these uh, acts that took place back in the 18, 1900s. But so some people might be, well, why is he talking about this really old law from way back when? But it still has an impact on today, which is crazy. So I, yeah. I really love the way that you kind of wove all three of those things together throughout the book. And it was really entertaining and touching and found myself laughing out loud at work um, to the amusement of my coworkers who are like, what, <laughs> what is John doing? Um, you know, so They're like I'm reading about slavery. They're like, mm-hmm. why are you laughing, bro? Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. not. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I'm like, long story. You got to read the book. Right. Long, just, just trust me. Trust me. Um, one of the, I was, the, the chapter that's called, I was doing per- perfectly fine. Then damn it. Here comes Jesus is a chapter where I, where I talk about lynching in the black church, but people, people remind me, they're like, you do realize that you started this chapter talking about vaginal steaming. <laughs> yes. Like, you're right. We kind of went a long way in that chapter. We 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 journeyed. We we started at vaginal steaming and ended with lynching in the black church. You just you just have to you have to read it. <laughs> it makes sense once you're there. Yeah. Um but I, I feel like uh uh chronologically, I think the best place to start obviously is with your childhood, which you recount and you had this really unique kind of upbringing because in a way you were sort of protected from what was going on in the rest of the country in regards to your skin color just by living in this really kind of eclectic place. So talk about like the impact that had and then how eye-opening it was when you went to visit other parts of the country. Sure, man. I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. And anytime I tell people that, they're like, what's it like to grow up in Las Vegas around casinos all the time? And when you grow up there, you don't realize, like, as a kid, man, you don't realize you're growing up in Las Vegas. Like, I live in Nashville now, so it's similar to these kids that grew up here. And, you know, I used to mentor these high school students, and I'd be like, what's it like growing up in Music City? And they're like, we don't know any other place. Or, bro, one of my favorite cities in the world is New York City, right? And I'll see, like, a like a like a nine-year-old kid walking, like, riding a skateboard in, like, down, like, in you know, New York in the middle of the street. And I'm like, I want to know your story. Like, do you realize that you live in a place where people are trapped, like Broadway's down the street, bro. And you're just cruising on your skateboard and you just don't know that that's who you are and what you do. And so growing up in Las Vegas, man, like I talk about it in the book, it's such a diverse place for multiple reasons, right? Like, and there are technical actual reasons why Las Vegas ends up being just this pot of just so many different people. And so I, I talk about when I was in elementary school, all of my friends were just so radically different as far as their skin tone and their background and their culture. And to me, this was normal. 
And look, I was very aware of the fact that I was black. I knew I was black and I, I was very aware. So it was never an issue. I never grew up thinking like color didn't matter. That wasn't it. It was the opposite. Instead, I'm looking at all these different people going, okay, this is how it is. But it wasn't until my mom took me out um, to Alabama and then to northern uh, New York where I realized that this blackness that I had known was going to be a problem to some people. Las Vegas, in the midst of all the things that it is, um, they don't do the best job of pointing out how racisty the rest of the world is. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. At least when I was a kid, that's how it is. And don't get me wrong, Las Vegas, Nevada, they have their own problems everywhere, everywhere does. But um, as a child, I just didn't realize it was an issue. And I'm also aware that that's not the only place in the world that that exists. But for me, it was, it was this safe place that even now, my parents still live there. And it, that's home for me, man. And living in the South is just such a different experience or going to Texas or um, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of my six foot two blackness when I'm not in a place where I can look around and see other individuals that look like me. Yeah, that's that, that had to be such a shock. Like I remember you recounting in the book, like the first time, like it really stuck out like, oh, for whatever reason, this is an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I talk about in the book about how when I visited up upstate New York, my uh, I, my mom was going to visit a white family. And I'll tell you, man, this is funny because I haven't talked about this this specific part a lot. But I went to go visit this my mom's friend, and we um, they had a kid. We ended up going fishing, which I ta- I have a kids book coming out in September called A Door Made for Me, and I basically tell this story. And so we, him and I, we, got, we go out fishing and we're walking back to um, go and tell all of his friends about this fish, this fi- the, all these fish that we caught. And so we go up to all these different doors and um, people are like, yeah, you can't come in. Yeah, you can't come in. And at first I was like, you know, maybe they just don't want fish in their house. Like I didn't really get it. Then finally a woman opened up a door and just straight up said like, yo, that Negro boy can't come in. You can come in though. And... Uh, I talk about in the book how that was like the first time, <sighs> like that's something I, I realized this is something I can't change. Like my, like if she would have said your punk friend who, you know, spit in my yard can't come in. It's one thing. I'm like, that's a changeable thing for me. But to say that Negro boy can't come in, that's like, um, that's some stuff like a, a Disney villain says, you know, like it, it, it defines the core of who you are. And I, here I was, this is a part I was going to say, which I don't talk about a lot. Here I was th- thinking I was having this singular moment, right, John? Like where I was like this impactful moment um, with me that will forever change my life that only I can understand. <laughs> and year, when I went to go write the book, I called my mom and I was like, hey, mom, do you remember that time we went to upstate New York? And she was like, yeah, where all the racisty people were. <laughs> and I was like, yep. wait, wh- what? Like, and she was like, yeah, man, they were, it was bad. And I was like, so you were experiencing this too? She was like, yeah, we couldn't go to anybody's houses when we were there. We couldn't go to our friends' friends' houses because they didn't want us. And, and I'm like, as a little kid, I'm having this experience, but you as a grown woman were having the same experience I was. And that was the first time, man, I realized that my skin tone 
was a problem for some people. And I remember longing to want to come home. And when I say come home, I meant specifically Las Vegas, a place where I felt like I was going to be safe. And um, even to this day, the idea of longing for home, I think kind of ties to that experience. Yeah, it, it brings me back to a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago. I was interviewing a guy from um, a pastor named Jonathan Martin, and um, he was talking about a sanctuary and your safe place and when that becomes disrupted and trying to find new safe places that you can you can go to. And it seems like, you know, Las Vegas is clearly that's your safe place that you can retreat to. And the other two things I thought about that's interesting, I think that's shocking for a lot of people who just aren't uh, at this point paying attention, I guess. But but I think uh, within the last few years, it, there's been a disruption in the system where a lot of the things that were already there have kind of boiled to the surface. And so like a right. lot of people think, well, racism that's only something that happens in the South. And yet you're having this experience and about as far North as you can get. And people are like, Oh, this only happens back in like, you know, the 1960s or, you know, prior to that, it's like, no, this happened in the 20th century. Like, and it's still happening now. Like we just passed the Emmett Till um, law just in, in March. Yeah. For of the anti-lynching law. Like, do you realize that? I mean, you have, how old is your daughter, John? She's eight. She's eight, man. So when she's 18, when she's about to graduate from high school, you're going to be able to say to her, hey, honey, just so you know, we as the United States of America decided that lynching was bad 10 years ago when you were eight. In your lifetime, is in your lifetime, daughter, we decided that lynching was was something that should be um, should, should there should be a law against it, you know. And and man, when you look at the trickle down effect of what history um, has had on our current day and our present day, it's 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 almost mind boggling, you know. Um, but also, I'll tell you this, bro, out of sight, out of mind. Like if these things aren't affecting you on a personal, everyday level. I joke all the time, like, man, <laughs> I joke all the time, like, I can't even be, like, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like, for all my white friends that are like, yeah, man, I didn't even know that was a thing. I'm like, yeah, you wouldn't know. <laughs> like, you know. And, like, I ain't even mad at you on some level. Like, you just, uh, you a white dude who, you ain't worried about an anti-lynching bill and when it passed, you know? Um, but me, I'm over here like, this affected the history of, of my people, of my, my mom and dad, no stories of people that were lynched. And, you know, it's heavy. It's heavy. So I'll, I'll, I'm amening to your, these things that we place in history really do have an effect on our current day to day. If you look at redlining and you look at how we, how we um, deal with health care, you know, all of these things have a trickle down effect from this history that really isn't that far away from us. Yeah, it's great. I read I read in the article when it passed that it it took twelve decades of failed attempts just to get this what seems like a common sense law passed. Like this clearly is a hate crime. Why in the world did it take us twelve decades to get this thing passed? It's and unreal. bro, you do understand that there's still there were still three people that voted against it. Mm. Three. There were three. How do you how do, how are you so on the wrong side of history? That when somebody says, 
like, can you imagine these 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 three individuals' children when they're twenty, and you know they're learning in college that the bill had just been passed in twenty twenty two, and they're reading in their in their college history books the three people that said no, we want to continue like anti lynching isn't a problem. They have to read the name and realize that it was their father who said no. <laughs> like you know what I'm saying? Like how how far deep in in the wrong side of history do you have to be to to be ignorant and i don't mean ignorant in a negative way i mean ignorant in the literal sense right that you're you're ignoring what's happening around you man it's 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 mind blowing to me bro yeah and one of the things you talk about in the book too just in terms of of lynching in general is just the fact that again it you know when we think of lynching we think oh that happened generations ago and we think of you know a bunch of rednecks and a pickup truck and a rope you know but that's not what it is it still happens but it's evolved in something very different and now we see it i mean we see it in the news all the time it's just a different form it just looks different now yeah man you gotta think about ahmad Aubrey. he literally got chased down by three white men chased down chased down and shot and killed and left in the middle of the road um, I remember when the trial was happening, thinking to myself, um, if these men get off for lynching a man in the middle of, uh, uh, in, on tape in front of everyone, um, what kind of effect is that going to have? And what does that tell other individuals in, in the United States as to what they're allowed to do? And, um, let me let me let me kind of cross over a little bit and talk about I, I want to talk about just for a second the importance of the black church in the midst of what was happening at that time period and mm, yes please in um, lynching and this side of the other because I don't get a chance to talk about it all the time during the time and, and this hasn't changed during the time when lynching was the thing when it was happening on a and I and I continual like rotating basis people are surprised to find out historically, especially people that aren't believers or have no sense of like kind of uh, faith that the Bible and the black church was such a hope and a place for um, safety and reconciliation for, for black people during the time of lynching. But what they didn't understand at the time, which I think is so significant, man, is pastors at that time, black pastors, they had to play multiple roles, right? They couldn't just be the preacher on a Sunday morning, go home and hang out with their family and kids and, you know, turn on a game in the middle of, of Sunday after a hard day. They were concerned about their lives as well. They had to be counselors, consolers. Um, they had to be doctors, nurses. They had to take care of widows in a way that were, it was a tangible way, bro. It wasn't just like, oh, we have somebody here who lost their husband. It's, it was literally like we were taking care of you because your husband is hanging from a tree down the way. And this was a pastoral role in the black church at that point. And now let's look at 2022, where there are many, many, many churches. And I'm going to say the white church and I'll say white church. And when I say white church, I don't mean like completely predominantly white, but I'm saying like, if you can count the number of black people in your church, you probably go to a white church, right? 
Um, if you if you're like, but we have like seven, Tyler. I'm like, I'll be like, dude, you you're just your your church is white. It's cool. I'm mad about it. That's just what it is. You know, um, you have these you have things like George Floyd happening, and you have pastors and assistant pastors and all that coming together and going, guys, what are we supposed to do here? How do we um, address? these issues that are happening in America. Maybe we get together and pull together like a social justice council. And maybe we meet on Wednesday night. Maybe every fourth Sunday, we do like a 20 minute period uh, talk where we talk about what's happening with black people in America and this out or the other. What people don't understand is for black people, the black church, Sunday morning is the social justice meeting. You follow me? Sunday morning is the time. There's no other time. There's no... There's not a black church in America that's getting together going, y'all, when are we going to talk about this George Floyd issue? Maybe Wednesday of next week? You know, um, because the the church has always, for black people, represented a place where they can come and lay down their lives. They can lay down their troubles. They can lay down their worries. And it was never political. It was about talking about how um, a God who is supposed to love us is going to walk us through this shitty life. I know I took us deep there for a minute, but I don't get a chance to really talk about that too much on um, everyday podcasts, especially when, cause it's a, it's a faith issue there, you know? No, I'm, gl- I'm glad you did. I actually have that in my, in my list of questions I wanted to ask you about is cause you, you do bring up, there's this, um, I don't know if the dichotomy is the right word, but there is this, weird parallel situation going on between what's happening in the in the black churches at the time and as you said just this enormous amount of weight on the shoulders of of black pastors and yet down the road there's the white churches who are preaching out of the same bible the same text and defending things like slavery and the essentially the dehumanization of an entire people group based on skin color it's it's mind-boggling it, it is and um man you Listen, you wonder how in the world are there still black Christians nowadays? Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I wonder how, how there are there still... any Christians in general these days, you know? Uh, right, right, right. Um, but I mean, let, 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 look, let, let's, let's keep it 100, shall we? If you are a white person who has the Bible, which is supposed to be the word of God telling you that... <laughs> you have a, a document that's allowing you to keep your power. That's basically like saying you white person should not only have this power, but here's scripture. We're going to use a scripture as to why you should keep this power. Like, why are you going to run from that religion? Like, I mean, eh, you know, it's, you know, and I do think that one of the biggest pieces, and I, you know, this isn't new information. One of the biggest pieces to racism and well, I won't, I'm not going to say racism. I think one of the biggest problems that we have in the United States is um, people being afraid of losing their power. You know, um, on almost every level, it's tied into people being afraid of losing their power. And this is not only history is not only showing this, but we're still seeing this today in our current, you know, time. And I can list a million reasons, especially on this date with new information that has come out with the Supreme Court, which I won't necessarily touch on. But, you know, there's a million reasons why um, we live in a place where people are trying their best to control, to just keep their power. Yeah, I mean, we see that We see that when it comes to um, 
all sorts of political issues or things that become political um, when we use politics to retain power in, in some form or fashion. And it's, um, you know, as you said, it's happening now. We don't even need to bring that issue up, but um, but it's certainly uh, a power play. Um, and and it, it's interesting. I talked to um, Andre Henry uh, about a week ago, and we talked about um, just the history of um, how politics have been used as a tool uh, to undermine any uh, social justice progress that might have been made, but but literally just to retain power for a political party. One hundred percent, man. Um, you white people, John, get it, pull it together, I bro. Know. Oh God, it's yeah, it's bad. The more the more history I learn, the more I'm just like, oh man, I, you know, uh, Scotland. I need to move back. <laughs> So talk a little bit about like, cause I think part of the, the big part of your story is obviously like as you're kind of becoming a man and, and, and getting a little older and, and going through uh, the most awkward years of life for anyone, you know, going through junior high and high school and stuff like that. Um, there are really some, as you call them, the sliding door moments. Uh, and just like the power of your mother, who sounds like an amazing woman to kind of put you in the right place at the right time to give you opportunities that maybe wouldn't have been there otherwise. And you, and I identify with this wholeheartedly. I was also a theater kid, big into music, um, you know, all that stuff. And so I found my people. And I think you even mentioned at one point, you're like, you know, uh, theater and, and, and the arts really kind of almost saved my life. And I feel that like on another level, I went to a all white high school, um, that was in the middle of nowhere very rural, uh, experienced racism in front of me for the first time. And I was not raised that way. I remember I looked at my dad and he's just like, nope, (laughs) you know, and just never felt like I fit in there. And it was very much like football, football, football. And I love football. Don't get me wrong. But like, if you didn't play football, no one cared who you were kind of thing. And I found my people through the arts, through music, through theater, um, and felt like I was connected to something for the first time. So talk about like how that kind of threw you a lifeline. And then through that, uh, some of the people you met who obviously still have an impact on your life today. Yeah, man. Uh, well, here's one thing that's great. How tall are you, John? About 5'11". Okay. You're 5'11". All right. I've always been a big dude, right? Like always. Okay. And so a little bit of history. My parents were from um, a little tiny town called Utah, Alabama, where um, where they came out of and growing up. My father, who ended up being in the military, like the way that you ended up succeeding as a black person back in those days, like if you were ever going to be successful, like or even have like a way out, you either go into the military or you either play sports. Like there was no, there's no, wasn't really like. You know, there weren't people at the time coming out being like, I'm going to be an astronaut. Like, so in my, in my dad's mind, it was, you know, I have a boy and then my boy is strong and he's big and he's talented and he's athletic. And I talk about this a ton in my book. I played sports pretty much. I, I don't get me wrong. I enjoyed sports, but I also live in Las Vegas. I was playing football in like 110 degrees weather, you know, as a kid I loved I loved sports, but I, the reason why I think I loved it the most is because that was what my dad not only wanted from me, but it's what he expected from me. And I was in it deep. To this day, you can go to my house in Las Vegas, and there's a closet full of trophies from when I was a kid. And people always laugh, and they're like, 
why are the, all these trophies? I like they're mine. I played sports up until I was like thirteen, you know, and um, and man, growing up also where my middle school was super gang affiliated and then going to a high school, the first high school I went to that was super gang heavy. Um, man, I accidentally discovered theater and can you can't possibly understand, bro, what it's like for your Southern father who sees in you a richness to become a great, my sport was baseball. So he was like, you're going to be to this day. My dad is like, you could have been a contender, you know? (laughs) Um, and for me to basically go home one day and go, yeah, I don't want to play sports anymore. I want to sing and dance. And and he's like, Oh, so you want to be Michael Jackson? I can get that. I'm like, no, more like Oklahoma. You know what I mean? He's like, uh, like, wait, what? (laughs) He's like, yeah. Um, so we, 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 we need to have a conversation, but it wasn't even that man. He wasn't even like, we need to have a conversation. My dad just kind of shut off and was like, all right, well, you know, and stop, didn't come to any of my plays or anything, but I linked into the arts in a way it, it set a fire in me like nothing had ever happened before. But how I talk about it in the book from a black perspective is I end up going to a performing arts school my senior year. It's the first time a performing arts school existed in Las Vegas. And even though there were very few amount of black people there, there was a, another friend of mine who becomes my friend named Brian Jason Young, who's a dancer. And I watched this guy dance for this audition. And I'm looking at this dude, John, and I'm like, he's blowing my mind, bro. Like, like so talented. He's like a junior. And I'm watching this guy dance his ass off. And and the director of the, it was for an audition. And the director was sitting next to me. I was the assistant director. And she's a white woman. And she's like, this guy is great. And I'm sitting there having like this existential moment of like, how did this black kid get here? Like, what the sun and moon and everything had to align to have this, this 15 year old kid dancing in front of me, like, like nothing I've ever seen before, which made me start to, to, to think and wonder like how many black kids are missing? How many black kids are we missing in the arts because they just didn't know that that world was existed for them or that they could, they had the ability to be able to be something great outside of the little world in which they existed or what their parents expected of them. And their parents are expecting, look, you can't be mad at my dad that him growing up was like, this is what greatness looks like. And he was just raising me to be great. I didn't know there was this whole other world that I could get a scholarship for theater. I could get a letterman's jacket and acting like what? That's the whitest shit ever, John. <laughs> right. But, but you know, I ended up getting it, but it's still like, we just didn't know that that, um, I didn't know that that, that sliding door moment, that singular thing that just changed me around would end up having a, a lifetime impact on my life. And I still to this day think about as we continue to cut the arts and funding of the arts, how my discovering art and comedy and how to deal with people, that's the reason why I'm sitting here with you today, man. And I, I think I just want that for not only for so many black kids, but just so for so many kids 
period. Because I really do think the arts matter in a way that we, we will never be able to quantify. I wholeheartedly agree. When when those st- sorts of things started to happen, and like, don't get me wrong, I love sports, but when sports exist after arts programs get cut, that's where I'm like, what are we doing? Like a game won out over something that could provide a career or provide back to the community in a way that, you know, this child maybe couldn't otherwise. Like you talked about the fact that math is not your thing. I am terrible at math. If that was my only option, I would be worthless in society, Right? you know? Right. <laughs> but listen, man, let me, let me tell you this. And I, I'm about to open up a, a can of controversial, okay? But I'm going to... Um, I, I'm I'm going to talk about how race in America is is it's in things that we don't even think about because because I'm going to bring this thing up and there are going to be people that are going to go I never thought about that before but this is a real thing okay let's I'm about to, I'm telling you I'm going to open up a can right now but first let me start by saying I am a fan of football. I love the NFL. I want college football in my book. I say roll tide 98,000 times. <laughs> I know people probably just hung up after they heard me say that, but uh, I, I'm a fan of football, but let's talk race and football for a second. We have now, because of science, have decided and have figured out that football um, no matter how we try to in technology, try to advance it to protect us is literally killing people. Okay. Football is literally killing people, not like figuratively, but literally. I remember back in the days um, I used to joke with my friends about going like, why did people go watch gladiators? Like what, who were you that you would go watch people fight to the death? And now I look at us as we watch the NFL, which I already said I watch. I'm I'm guilty of this, but we are also seeing that people are dying from CTE. You know who decided they don't want their kids to play football anymore? White people, white women and men of a certain um, um, economic status. Go Google this stuff. Like their whole entire football programs in like white rural places have fallen because their parents are going, no, my kids aren't doing that because they also don't need to do that. But instead, you know, who still feels the pressure to succeed and will, will fight to the death to try to get into college are young men of color who are going, this is my only way out. And so now you have a class of people that are now watching men of color play a game with at a higher percentage that they are watching and they are pouring into that they have decided they're not going to let their own children play. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is everyday racism in America that we just, we don't pay attention to. But as a black person, I look at that and I go, this is, this is directly in front of my face, but these are these are a lot of things that people don't have to think about. You know, like I said, I know people are like everybody feels a certain way about the NFL and football, and so I know I'm kind of opening a can with that. But I'm also not like I'm just giving statistics here. I'm not you know trying to stand you know make a big point so much as I'm just saying this is the world that we live in. You know, 
Yeah, and you make you make this great point in the book where you talk about just professional sports in general is like we've been provided, we've been sold this lie uh, that, as you said, your only two options to get out of the situation you're in, to succeed in life, to make millions of dollars. I mean, look at, uh, I won't say who, but the Cleveland Browns may have signed a quarterback who has a little controversy behind him. But aside from that, <laughs> right, he got right. signed to the biggest deal in league history, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to play a, a game. And you point out in the book, like, yeah, if you see your only options to succeed in life as sports or like music, like I remember yeah. I did, um, I went to college to be a teacher and we had to yeah. do uh, uh, observations and we had to go to different grade levels. And I was at a middle school on the outskirts of Columbus and it was predominantly uh, uh, black students at this school. Sure. And I remember talking to the kids and the kids reflected that that notion that their only option was to make it in sports or to become a rapper. And yeah, man. And one of the kids did make it as a rapper, but I was like, guys, his uncle was also Snoop Dogg, so that probably helped. You know? So like I wouldn't bank on that happening, you know, like right. We got to keep you in school and like you can do it with your brain, you know, and like but like dispelling that notion and then also like you said, if we put as much time and effort into developing these young minds as we do developing them as athletes, who do we miss out on? And you, you point that out in the book too, in terms of, uh, I think you pointed out some musicians and stuff like they could have been mathematicians. We'll never know. Right. Right. I talk about why doesn't Shaq play volleyball? Yes. Right. Yeah. And if he did, how, if Shaq played volleyball, he would be the best volleyball player of all time. Granted, he's also like one of the best basketball players of all time. But if Shaq was playing volleyball, Mm-hmm. Like it would, there, it would be a wrap, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> but how did he not end up there? And there's systematic reasons as to why we end up being where we are, man. And it, look, I drive a, I drive a pretty fancy car here in Nashville and I pull up to a gas station and get out of the car. And the first thing, you know, oftentimes white people say to me is, and this is funny cause I don't think I haven't talked about this a ton about the, the different reactions that I get from things, um, white, white people will say to me, is like, hey, man, that's a great car. Are you a ball player? Like, that's the fir- Are you a Titan? Do you play on the Titans? And um, what I, uh, I, will, I will accept that thing in exchange for every time that I've heard when I've got out of my car and some young black kid will walk up to me and he'll be like, yo, man, you dripping right now, bro. You look, man. It's like, what do you do? What do you do? I need to know. what. How do I? And I'm like, man, I'm an author. What? Yes. What? I love that. You know, and I'm like, I'm an actor. Shut, man, shut up. You know, and just being able to say to young black men, there is success out in the world like you like you just can't dream of and we just aren't raised we just typically aren't raised that way man and um that's my hope that's one of the reasons why i wrote this book i i I gave the dedication saying like um we are not monolithic and i love when i have black people reach out to me and say thank you for writing this book because giving a continual permission and telling out to the world that there isn't just one way to be black. And if there's anything you pull out of this book is that I'm pretty clear that that's, that's the case there. There's not one way. Yeah. And one of, one of the other things I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about too, is you also mentioned that part, part of the problem too, is just like our education system in terms of uh, the amount of funding that goes into uh, all, you know, predominantly white schools versus schools that have a prevalence of minority groups. 
And also like, and I love this, you, br- you brought this up because uh, uh, I remember reading something similar in uh, Dr. Drew Hart's book, uh, The Troubles I've Seen. Love that guy. I love his work. But he talks about the same thing where he's like, how many black authors do you remember reading in, in, in high school or in just in your educational journey? And I just stopped and think about it. And I was like, you know, most of the black authors I've read, I read because I found about found out about them after the fact. Like no one sure. ever told me about James Baldwin. I was pissed. I was like, James Baldwin's one of the most beautiful writers I've ever read in my life. And no one told me about him. Right. Like, how? No one ever told me about it. Right. Like, you're like, how am I discovering about this dude now? Yeah. The Fire right. Next Time. One right. of my favorite books of all time. That thing is poetry. And didn't know about it until I stumbled across a documentary like three years ago. That's insane. Yeah. Right. Insane. Right. Yeah. And most, I think most people growing up, they're like, they get the general, I talk about this in my book, you get the generals, you get the Langston mm-hmm. Hughes. Like most people probably know Langston. As far as a writer goes, but that's yeah, my Angelou, you know, yeah, my Angelou that, you know, if you're lucky, you know what I'm saying? But we could go on that path for, for years and years and for, for forever, man. But I appreciate you bringing it up. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's important. I think when you don't have models of anything other than, you know, like athletes and, and musicians, when they do exist, but you're only presenting like two streams, two avenues. It's like, what, like, what do we expect? You know? Right. It's like, right. We, we've got to present more role models that are more as diverse as the community from which they come, you know? True that, man. Yeah. So talk about, um, I love this quote, by the way. Uh, I'd love for you to expand on it. You, where you say, maybe Eagles mar- marvel at dolphins and maybe dolphins marvel at Eagles. Oh yeah, man. Um, that ties into the story I was telling about my, my friend, Brian Jason Young, who was this dancer at this performing arts school. And I looked at him like, what in the world is going on? And I remember sitting there watching him wondering how he got there. But the reason why the the backup to that story is, and I, I definitely tell it better in the book is I joke about how this was one of the most defining moments in my life in high school where I could have, it could have made, made or broke me here, right? Where I was supposed to audition for this musical for fame, but I was while working on a different show, Ain't Misbehaving, so I couldn't audition for it. And the director was like, you would have gotten cast at Leroy, Tyler. Like, if you would have auditioned for this play, you would have been playing the main role. But we didn't know that also auditioning was going to be this Brian Jason Young character. And if him and I would have both auditioned at the same time, it would have been mayhem. Like people would have, I wouldn't have even auditioned. The only reason there was one person auditioning is because everybody watched this guy rehearse and they were like, I'm out. Yeah. Like I, it would have been, it would have been it. But what happened at the Academy that year, I was already doing another show, Ain't Misbehaving. And then we later did this like Broadway revival show where I did a song from Ambus Behaven called Your Feet's Too Big. And it was the singing comedic piece that everybody loved. They were like, Tyler, you are a beast in the entertainment industry and you were only a senior in high school. Jason, Brian Jason Young looked at me and went, I can't sing like that. Like I can't, I can't do what that black kid just did. Like I don't, that's not my jam. I can dance circles around him, but to get up and and um, break down a song, learn how to communicate it in a comedic way and this, that, or the other, um, even at that young age, man, I realized, like, you know, we're, 
the rest of our life, my, the rest of my life is going to be um, a, a world of comparison. And I have to figure out kind of how to make that comparison work in my advantage and just understand that there are some people that are going to be great at things and we need to stand in awe of their blessing, right? And and look at the better things that they are putting out in the world that may not be my jam, but to know that they are also looking at me in the same way. And I, I want to use this moment to to say to people that are listening, you are not alone when you're scrolling through social media or on Instagram. You're so scrolling through things and you're looking at people and going, Oh my gosh, look at look at what they have. And I'll get really specific. I know women do this often, and I know because my best friend's a girl. It's hard to scroll through and go, you know, as a single woman, go, oh, I see this lady, this woman, my friend who now has a family and three kids and all of these things. And you're you're looking at that and you're going, this is ideal and maybe something that I desire. While she's also scrolling through your pictures and going, that single 40-year-old woman is in New York by herself at her Broadway show. That is something I could never do with my three busted-ass kids, <laughs> right? You know, you, know, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, um, or in the same way, I'm an actor, man. Like, I, I, you know, I'm scrolling through social media all the time looking at people. No joke. I'm about to go work on this NBC show next week, and I don't post about it. Because I have good friends that I know also read for the same, read for it as well. And I don't want them to go, I read for this thing and I didn't book it. But I, even though I'm about to go work on this show next week, I can go on social media today and scroll through and see a friend of mine that booked something else and find myself going, oh man, look what they have. When in reality, when we, oh God, how much better would life be if we were all able to just marvel at each other in the ways that God marvels at us and just say, yo, this thing that this individual is doing or has accomplished or this goal or skill that they have is the perfect thing for them. And that's amazing. And that's something that I learned at a really young age in my situation with Brian Jason Young going, I may never dance like that, but he's never going to be able to sing like that like this and that's okay because that is how we make the world beautiful yeah because both of you bring something unique to the table and we're all better for it at, at having both of you in, in, in the world yeah you know there's enough room at the table that's what we always say you know there's enough room at the table yeah um i love where you say because i know a, a a term that was used a lot when i was growing up when it came to social justice and and, and rights was this term tolerance. And I never felt fully comfortable with tolerance because tolerance always said to me, well, we're tolerating you. Meaning like, we don't right. like you, we don't agree with you, but we'll put up with you and not raise a stink about it. Like that didn't feel like social justice to me. And you talk about it being, sure. that like really is the bare minimum. So right. talk about, uh, and you bring this up a lot throughout the book and I, I freaking love it where you talk about the the power of proximity and how it breeds empathy and how we can go further than just tolerance. Yeah. I, I think you're completely right, man. The idea of tolerance is that we can tolerate each other. We go like, you know, we're in the same room and because we're all in the same room, we're going to have to deal with each other. Sure. Sure. But I don't even, th I don't think that that's a, I don't think that, <laughs> 
I don't think it's even a biblical concept. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. we're all in this world so that we can just tolerate each other. Well, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, uh, tolerate your neighbor, you know? (laughs) It's like, what are the greatest commandments? Tolerate your neighbor and tolerate... Yeah, yeah, no. Right. (laughs) Tolerate thy God and tolerate thy neighbor. Right. You know what? I need to make t-shirts that say that. I love it. I'd buy one. (laughs) That's fantastic. But for real, man, If imagine if we just walk the earth with that being our number one... Um, the bar that we were trying to achieve. And what I talk about in my book, which I mean to the core of who I am, man, gosh, if we allow ourselves to really spend quality time with people that do not look like us or that may look like us and live different stories, um, to really like take some time and spend, spend moments to learn people's stories and history um, that tolerating becomes so much more. It becomes um, a respect. It becomes an honoring. It be- it can even become like a, um, a a little bit of envy in a good way of wanting to be able to go like, I may not have lived your life. I may not know your story, but knowing your story and and and, and hearing your life from your perspective is making me richer. It's making me better. So I'm not just tolerating you as an individual being different, but now I'm beginning to fall in love with you in a way that I could have never expected if I wouldn't have opened this door to allow you in to who I am. And that's a tangible thing, man, that I think that we ignore. Think, there are people who have sat at desks in their workplace for years now with three different people that look different from them, you know, all around them and have never stopped to go... Hey, tell me about your kid in this picture. And why are they wearing a yarmulke? Or or let's let's talk about who you are. Um and just those those moments, man, of trying to find out about the people around us on a level that goes beyond skin deep. That's the kind of stuff that that alters who we are as people, man. You never know the richness you never know the richness that is right around the corner from you unless you stop and look and, and ask and take it in and, and, and take away some of these internal fears that we have and just go, you know what, I'm going to bypass this fear. I'm going to take a step forward to see if there is an ability to love someone better here and go beyond this just holleration, toleration in this dancery. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, we're just going to deal with it as we go. I, I feel that on such a deep level. I remember I, I got into this, like, <laughs> I try not to, but I got in this uh, Facebook <laughs> debate, we'll say, with a Bless guy it. who I wasn't even, like, really good friends with, but we had become Facebook friends over the years. We went to high school, the same high school, and like I said, very rural, very white Christian bubble, you know? Sure. And... I, I engaged with him because he was posting some things that were just just blatantly wrong about Islam. And sure. I've studied a little bit, and I don't profess to be an expert, but what he was saying was just factually inaccurate. Yeah. And I'm like, no, man, that's just not true. That's not true. That, none of that is true. You know, and we got into this big debate, and, you know, of course, Christianity got brought into it and stuff. And For sure. I said, look, man, you live in this really tiny town. I live in this city that actually has diversity that I encounter on a daily basis. And you have relationships with people who are different than you and think different than you. And 
I think back to an experience I had where a coworker, um, I needed to uh, um, go to a temple uh, for sure. for a paper I was writing. So I went to this uh, this Hindu temple and had an hour long conversation with the temple priest. It was wow. one of the most spiritually just beautiful awakening moments I've ever had in my life. Right. They right. could not have been more welcoming, you know, uh, welcome me to this giant feast. No attempts to convert me or any of these yeah. other things, but I saw the heart of these people. And I told him, I'm like, look, man, I can't unknow that now. I can't unsee hmm. that because I know them on a level now that I didn't before. And so I can't just blatantly parrot these things that you're saying and believe those things to be true because I know the truth now, you know? Wow. And like, I can't, I can't go there with you. I just can't, you know? And I, I, I think that's so true though, you know? Yeah, man. And listen, I, I talk about this in the book as well. Like, um, I'm going to go here for a second, which I don't think this is unusual on your podcast, but, um, when I hear, when I hear, especially my Christian friends, granted my circles gotten a lot smaller as far as, um, putting people around me that, that trust and kind of feed into my peace. But, um, I also have a broad social media, um, uh, world where when I hear my Christian brothers and sisters talk about, gay people and what they think gay people are and who they are. Um, my number one thought is you don't know any gay people. Right. <laughs> like, you don't, you don't know any gay people. You know, I, I joke about how I'll have some guy go, I don't want that gay guy around me. Cause I don't want him to touch my booty. I'm like, you are not hot enough for any of my gay friends. <laughs> right. Like none of my gay friends are messy, bro. <laughs> Like, never. There's not a world that exists. Like, no gay friend I have would ever want you ever, period, bro. Just no. <laughs> exactly. I can tell you no, no gay people. Right. Um, uh, but I, I think, and I, like what I talk about in my book, like, I grew up around a, a gay, a kid from a small age to us becoming adults. Um, he came out to me eventually, and I've known this kid since I was, like, seven. And... I'm hard pressed to have anybody stand in front of me and try to tell me what they think about gay people because gay people are not, it's not, um, theoretic for me. Um, it's not an idea for me. Like they're my friends, they're my family. And it's always so interesting, man. 90, I'll, I'll go so far as to say probably 93% of the time, you can take a parent, especially like a right-wing kind of fundamentalist kind of um, world who feels a certain way about um, gay people or trans kids or whatever. It's amazing how quickly their personality and their ideas change if suddenly their kid comes out. Yeah. Right? Now, granted, I'm saying this like 90-ish percent of the time because you have the other grouping that are like, I'm never going to deal with it. But you can be one of the most hard-pressed, fundamental, like Christian, like whatever, feeling a certain way about gay people. And then your kid who's like 18 decides to go, this is who I am. And suddenly you are left dealing with like, how do I, how do I, um, deal with this love of this person that I have and now understanding that this is their life choice and you're almost forced into a situation where that proximity gives you no other, no other option than to love the person in front of you. And it ends up being a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch. Um, 
And it's also a super uh, incredible study on once you are forced to be in proximity with that thing that you may fear or may not know, um, how you can't help but to shift in your ability to love that person. It's that's so funny. I just interviewed um, a woman who who would would tell you she was uh, came up came up like a fundamentalist and very staunch. And uh, that very thing happened where her daughter came out and it ruptured everything that she thought she believed. And um, and like wow. you say in the book too um, about your gay friend, and she said the same thing about her daughter. And I said the, said the same thing to my best friend. In uh, one of my best friends in high school came out to me our senior year. We were at a drive-in movie theater, and she was, I could tell she was terrified. And we always knew, you know. Right. And uh, we we're like, <laughs> we knew. You may not have known. We knew. Um, right, but, right. But um, we all kind of had the same reaction where our gut reaction was like, I love you anyway. Like, my first reaction mm. wasn't, hang on, what what is my Christian, uh, you know, Christian upbringing say about this? My first gut reaction was like, I know you and I've known you since you were a kid and nothing in this yeah. world will ever change the fact that I love you, period. That's beautiful, man. And, and, and I, what you just said, I think um, there are so many young people and adults too, man, adults that, are, that, that feel like they will probably never come out because they are concerned that they will never, they won't hear those words. And though you say them lightly and easy, and that's just what your heart is, man. There are so many individuals in the world right now that are still fighting because they are afraid that they won't hear those words, man. And, um, it was easy for you. And it's easy for someone like me to go, I just need you to trust my heart on this. Um, but people, there are people in the world who are waiting to hear those words, man. And I, and I just want to encourage anybody who's listening to this right now that um, there are so many people in this world that can be a safe place for you. And I am one of them. John is one of them. And even though he's a white man and we fear white people, um, <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we, are soft place, we are a soft place to land. Uh, absolutely. One of the things I want to talk about, um, uh, one of the threads throughout your book is, um, you know, it, it kind of goes back to that cliche, um, when one door closes, another door opens kind of thing, where you've had some things that have happened to you in your life that were obviously incredibly disappointing. And um, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast can identify with the fact that the church has failed us a lot. You know, and, and you've had some instances in, in your past where you, know, you talk about when you first became a youth pastor and, um, you know, just kind of the way in which they handled it, um, you know, uh, and, and then later on, you know, again, getting involved with the church and then having things kind of fall apart on you. And so, but all of those things kind of led to where you are today. So talk about like how those things kind of falling apart led to essentially what would become the Tyler Mayer project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my friend, uh, Glennon Doyle, she talks about how when you're at the very bottom of something, like, you know, that, you know, that the richness and the, the, the rebirth is soon to come. Right. Um, when you're at the bottom, 
in the moment when you're in it, it's really hard to look at. But there are very few times in our life where we look back and we're at the bottom of something that we didn't realize that the next thing that was was to happen is to rise from it. And I, I think now that I'm older, I'm able to have a little bit of um, patience and grace in that in those moments, right? But when you're going through them, especially in your 30s, you're thinking like it's over. You know what I mean? And um, my life is over. And um, I don't want to give too much away, but like many people that are listening to this podcast, I'm sure like I worked in a church. I had um, what the church would call a moral failing and a moral failure. And the the church I was working at the time kind of wasn't equipped on how to deal with it. And there were a lot of factors that went into it. Let's talk about my book. Um, uh, it, it was much, much deeper than it was much deeper than what I just applied applied it to. But um, I remember coming out of that situation and thinking, like, well, that's a wrap on me being able to have any sort of impact on the world now, because um, I've had church leaders who have looked me in the face now and pretty much said, "You're worthless." And Thank God I had a mom who was like, boy, you better stop it. Stop. Tyler, stop it. Um, You are not what they say you are. You are who he says you are. You are who I, as your mom, say you are. And um, that was just one incident early on in my 30s that I had to take a moment and say, "I, I am more than what the church says I am or what I can be. And um, as I began to build myself up, I still hadn't dealt with some of the core issues that were happening in, my, in, in the midst of all that. And later in life, I fell, for lack of a better word, failed again. And at this point, pretty much, I jumped off social media for two years, like left the world and was like in the valley for two years again at a place going like, oh, God, Um how did I get here again? And again, I had to have my mom say to me and some of the young people in my life, some, 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 of, some kids who can't see the bad in me. They don't see the, they only see the good, right? Look at me and say like, you are um, so much more than your failures. And having some of my high school students that I mentored at the time, some of these black kids on the football team looking at me being like, Yo, it's your realness and your brokenness that allows us to hear your voice. It's your realness. Because we, we're we not trying to deal with people that walk in the door like we've never been through anything. <sighs> Even talking about that makes me a little bit emotional thinking about how um, sometimes in our most broken places, those are the places that we are getting built up to be the strongest, you know? And we don't have, um, we don't have the ability to see that in the moment. But looking back now, if you would have told me in those deep, dark moments, I would end up writing a book about those deep, dark moments. And I'll tell you what's funny for people that are listening to this book right now. They're like, so wait, listening to this podcast right now, they're going, wait, so wait, wait, wait. You talk about vaginal steaming, you talk about lynching, you talk about the church, 
you talk about your parent. What is this book? Like, what is happening here? And um, there's really no way to explain it unless you're in it. Because I was purpose, I purposely kind of will you in. I like reel you in on um, uh, learning history, laughing a lot, but also um, getting to talk to you about how like kind of God affected me in a pretty kind of special way in my brother. Yeah. I even have a hard time, like, because I, I never heard the term brokenness or broken used so many times until I experienced, like, kind of what, more charismatic evangelical Christianity. And I'm sure. like, man, you know, like, it's not even brokenness. It's just we're going through what it is uh, to, to go through the human experience. 100%. Like, we're just being real human you know, in these moments and like right. everybody, I mean, if, if, if I'm broken, everybody's broken in some form or fashion. Like we're all just 100%. what it is to be alive, you know? And like, yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't hide too much away from the word broken because I feel like, um, everything that's broken can be rebuilt, you know, yeah. can, everything that's broken can, can continue to be constructed. And, um, I, I, I think if you're looking at broken, like, that's broken. This is a broken toy. You need to throw it out. That's one thing. Right. It's another thing. If you're going, there was a period of time where I was walking tall, but now I've been broken down from that. You know, that's a different way to kind of look at it, but I, I, but I feel you. And I think that that's, that's just our human experience, you know? And sadly we, 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 we fight against that human experience too. We end up covering that in shame. Right. And, um, I, which I talk about a ton in my book, like we, we find ourselves, one of the, one of the undertones, another like theme of my book is talking about how if every person who dealt with shame, we just kind of threw away, how many people would we lose in this journey? Like, and, and I talk about in the very last chapter of my book, which is one of my favorite chapters where I say to the, to the reader, like, You've now walked with me through so many things. Um, but here I am, still. Here you are, still. And I hope that you can see that no matter what we've walked through together, you still have a voice. You can still use it. And um, how many people have we lost uh, that have gone, I, I, I just, I no longer have a purpose here because of the shame I'm walking with. You know? Right. Makes me think of, um, you'd really like, or one of my favorite um, theologians, authors, whatever you want to call our speakers, Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Jacqueline Bussey uh, wrote a book called Love Without Limits. And um, I got to hear her speak. Oh, it's so good, man. Uh, I got to hear her speak about it, though. And one of the things, I don't even know if it's in the book necessarily. I think it's in one of her two books. She has another one called Outlaw Christian. But point is, she talks about scars and how scars are thing are, are points of shame historically. Like we try to hide our scars and she's like, no, you got to show your scars and wear them as a badge. You know, like mm. that's, that's, mm. that's a scars are something that show that we, we were alive. We survived. That we've seen some yeah, shit and we right. lived through it to tell, talk about it. You know, that's a sign of strength, not right, a weakness, right. you know? I love yeah. that. Yeah. Love it. There was another sermon I heard too a long time ago where um, one of my friends, Mel, she's a pastor, and she she did this sermon that I thought was brilliant. She talks about, she had this picture of a bull, this uh, very, very ancient 
china bowl and it had cracks in it. And then she talked about this ancient practice that that society had when they would get a crack in something, they would repair it, you know? But instead of repairing it in the way that we might, where you try to hide the cracks, they would use like this gold filler. And so yeah. the cracks stood out, but it was this beautiful, it become this beautiful thing where the cracks were now seams of gold. And that was wow. intentional. And I thought, that is completely contrary to the way we operate absolutely the opposite of the way that we walk through, especially in Christian culture. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We need to get rid of the shame, the shame wagon. We need to jump off of at this point. (laughs) Yeah. I I was, uh, I was, I think it was Bakari Sellers. Him and I got into this really weird random um, talk about spirituality on, on his podcast and um, which was unexpected, but he asked me, he was like, what kind of pastor do you like? And I was like, the what? Like, where, what direction is this going? And I, and I said to him, I was like, I'll be honest with you, man. <laughs> I'm like, man, I want my pastor to be like real enough that he just might get fired. Like, yes. Like I need my pastor to be like, I need him to not be so far that he's going to ruin the church, but I need him like right there on the line. Yeah. Like that when he's preaching, you know, he's preaching from some, like from a real and honest place. Like mm-hmm. that's the pastor that I need. Yeah. Like just once when something truly fucked up happens, I want a pastor yeah. to get up there just once and say, guys, that was immensely fucked up. Just once. Once. Because we're all thinking it. And God's probably thinking it too, you know? Like, just be real. Right. And, man, I've worked in kids ministry before. So, you know, in kids ministry, when you have the pastor's kids come in, and you have the pastor's kids come in, and they're talking shit about their parents, right? (laughs) And you're like, oh, so your your dad is a prick. You're like, yeah, yeah, he is. He's horrible. And you're like, okay, I thought he was. Like, we all think he's a prick. But thank you for justifying that here in this in this um, Sunday school class. You know what I mean? Like, he's much God, cooler so in real life than he is on stage. Like, he's, he's actually an asshole, right? Is he? Cool. All right, great. 100%. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, one of the things, I, the thing I want to end on, because I know we're, we're definitely getting over time here, was kind of kind of the journey that really took you to a place where um, – you came out of this, as you put it, you know, this, this period of time where you're off the grid completely and your, and your confidence is, is shaken and you're like, what is my purpose? And kind of, you know, wandering through the desert, if you, if you want to call it that. And then, um, you put out this video that to this day chokes me up called before you call the cops. And, um, so tell me about like what inspired the video, uh, and and you do mention that every piece of that was intentional and you can tell and it's absolutely beautiful and it went obviously super viral yeah and yeah. so talk about first like what went into it and then how did that change your life because obviously it had to have in many ways yeah um so what what birthed it is um in chapter 1 i talk about uh, the the chapter one of our book is called if she only knew where i encounter this white woman in a truck as I'm about to cross the street. And um, I I walk all the time here in Nashville. And I usually walk with a hood on, with a bandana on to keep the sweat out of my eyes and my glasses on and my headphones on. And 
I'm very aware of what I look like as a six foot two black person walking down the street, looking the way that I do. And I went to go across the street, um, like I always do. And I knew I was going to have to pass this white woman in her truck. And I was going to have to pass her driver's side window and that she was going to see me. And I didn't want to frighten her. So before I get close to her, I take out my hoodie, my glasses, my everything and put on a big smile. And I'm just trying to cross the street and she turns and looks at me slowly. It's not like I startle her. She turns and looks and then sees me and freaks out and like goes and locks her door all dramatically. And it's, and I stop in front of her and I start laughing at her. And um, I'm not laughing at her because I'm laughing directly at her. I'm laughing because I was thinking, if you only knew all the things that I had to do to keep what just happened from, from not happening. Like if you just knew, uh, like everything that I did to keep you from not freaking out and you still did. And um, I, as I finished my walk and as I decided as I walked back home and tried to figure out exactly what was going on with the rest of my life, um, I got home and decided that I wanted to, um, try to express to this woman, like if you knew who I was, if you had an actual concept or an idea of who I was, you might actually, um, love me, not only love me, but like really get to know me. You might want to get to know me. Not only love me, you, you would think that I was the best thing that ever happened to you in your life. And so I came home and I decided to make this video just kind of talking about who I am and, and what, and what I'm about. And it was important for it to call to call it before you call the cops or it starts off by saying before you call the cops i want you to know it was important to do that because i i don't think people understand that calling cops on black people it's a matter of life or death and people are starting to figure that out now right like when you know if that old white lady decides she wanted to call the cops on me suddenly cops show up not understanding what i'm about what's going on she've she has put her fear of her own personal fear into this cop now who's now going to like it can be a life or death issue, which we have seen now time and time again on video. And I just wanted to say to say to this woman, like, this is who I am. And I, I want to be really clear here. It wasn't because I was trying to humanize myself to her. That wasn't it. It wasn't because I was going, you need to understand that I'm a human. No, it wasn't, that wasn't it at all. It was instead me just going like, look, if you just knew me, if you knew that I was walking to this bench right now because I was trying to go and see my mother and I love her more than anything in the world, if you knew my dad was military, if you knew that I'm a, I hate spiders and they're, they're from Satan, if you knew that bananas are disgusting, if you knew that I, I, I know every single word to the NWA's straight out of Compton, every word, because I grew up in the hood, but I also know every word to Oklahoma. Maybe, maybe you would reevaluate what you want to do with your next actions. And man, I put this thing on video and I'll be honest with you, John, like I had created this piece of content and I watched it and it was three, this is re really, this is honestly what happened, bro. I watched this and it's three, three, you know, a little bit over three minutes. And I went, uh, I don't know how good of an idea this is. Nobody's going to want to watch. <laughs> Nobody's going to want to watch me talk about myself for three minutes. This just doesn't make any sense. And then 
it was like 1.30 in the morning. And so I sent a video over to my friend Lisa, who lives in California. And I was like, hey, I just made this video. What do you think? And she texted me back and she said, this feels holy. <laughs> and I went, okay, well, I guess I'm going to post it then. Um, this That's cool. And um, in the video, I wasn't wearing a shirt because I was trying to like be very like, just open and naked before the world kind of, you know? And my mom to this day is like, boy, why did you not wear a shirt in this video? And I was like, look, if I knew a hundred million people were going to see it, I would have put a shirt on. Like I would have left that piece off of this whole thing. And um, I look back now and that video changed my life. And it was just me telling the world who I am as a black man. And it was shocking to see how many people just needed to, to have a little bit of proximity in their life, you know? And I talk about in the book about how it all wasn't like rainbows and flowers with that video being out. Um, but I do think that um, there's a lesson to be learned here that sometimes when there's something that's in your heart, take forward movement. And in in bringing that thing to completion, because you never know what kind of impact it's going to have on the world. Oh man! And little did you know, I mean, it's it, it's you talk about this too in the book where it goes viral not just once, but it goes viral a second time because Jimmy Kimmel, yeah. talk show host, going through a tough time with his child, uh, and also aware of everything that had been going on in the world, um, sees it and asks permission. Hey, can I show this? on his talk show and then it, it blows up again. And so like in what ways did that, you know, obviously as an activist, maybe, you know, reluctantly so, as you mentioned before, but it, it clearly is something that opened up a lot of doors for you to be able to do a lot of amazing work. So how did it change you in a di- differently? Maybe the second time around, I'll tell you, the the Jimmy piece was 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 good, and don't get me wrong, like that definitely expounded. But by the time Jimmy used it, it had already had been like everybody had seen it. You know, I feel like he was kind of on the backside of it. He even joked about it. He was like, "This video is old, but here it is." Um, but I I think the biggest impact of that is that it was around the time of George Floyd, and I had made the video two years prior. Right. So it had it had gone viral two years before George Floyd. And I was off social media when it started to go viral the second time. I was completely gone because I was still in my like, whoa, is me. I'm never going to be able to do anything good with my life. And little did I know that like the Tyler Merritt project before you call the cops was trending on Instagram while I was like in my woe is me. Right. He's like, you need to get back um, on now. <laughs> that, that's my friend, Joy Reed. That's what she said. She was like, you need, cause I sent Joy this other video that I made called, um, the playlist, which has now been called, I think walking while black. If you look at it in social media, um, I sent it to my friend Joy and I, and in this video, I didn't make to, for the world. I just made it for me. Cause I had been in the desert for two years and I was walking every day. And I thought this video was kind of funny of like what I was listening to in my headphones. And I sent it to Joy and Joy was like, you need to post this shit now, pull it together, pull it together. And then Jimmy's, um, wife, Molly too, on hit me up and was like, you need to like pull your shit together, bro. Like, 
you are a voice that needs to be heard in the world right now. So whatever you're going through that makes you think that your, your life is so bad, like we need you now. Right. And it's that lesson that I try to pull on to a lot of people nowadays where I'm like, yo, kick your shame to the curb, like kick your shame to the curb and get in this fight with me, with us, because there's things going on in the world that only you, and I I need your listeners to hear this, man. There are things in the world that only you specifically you can have an impact on your unique, beautiful, wonderful self that I can't do, that John can't do, that only you can do. And we need you to do that. And in my case, sure, it just so happens that everything fell in line and um, the world ended up seeing this piece that I had put together. But look, that may not be your story. I don't know what your story is. But you need to know that we need you now more than ever. So kick your shame to the curb and get back in the fight. Bro, that's, that, I think that's where we got to end it. Can't end it better than that. That's beautiful, man. Thank you so much. And before I let you go, though, what are you working on now? Where can people go to stay up on top of now that you're back on social media? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. The Tyler Merritt Project has built a pretty great community online, so you can find me anywhere on Facebook under the Tyler Merritt Project, Instagram, the Tyler Merritt Project, Twitter at TTM Project, um, and I have a kid's book coming out, like I mentioned, in September, I think it's September 13th, called A Door Made For Me, which um, I'm so excited about. Um, yeah, and you stay in, stay on top of, of the stuff that I do there, and you can always go to the TylerMerrittProject.com, and then I'll kind of give you the entirety of my life and what's happening beautiful thank you so much man this was an absolute pleasure and absolute joy for me this is so much fun yeah man let me just say to you really quick too before we go man and i know how edits work so you might cut this off so i'm gonna say don't but listen man um speaking of things that only people only you can do what you're a hundred plus 160 something episodes deep in this man six years ago you started Uh, talking about deconstruction like six years and a podcast something man that you were way you made deconstruction way cooler way back than before anybody else did and um man i just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because you're 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 impacting you're impacting people in ways that you just don't know you're you're impacting people in ways that you will never get to experience or understand I I did not know that this is what was happening in your world while I can be sitting over here going, man, I hope my book has impact. You're over here going, I want this guy on my podcast. You need to know that in moments where you may feel like this is just another thing that I'm just doing, this is the 168th episode, that there are individuals who listen to this today and whose lives you've changed because you provided for them a community for them to be able to grow and learn. So take that, John, and know that this is, um, even when it doesn't feel like it, man, you're having an impact on the world that um, that that a lot of people uh, can't can't do. And so thank you for doing this, man. Um, it means something. It makes a difference. Ah, that might be the nicest compliment I've ever gotten. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate yeah, man, that. Sure. Hey, sliding doors. Sliding doors, bro. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, man. I, I, I really appreciate that. It's, uh, um, again, just an absolute pleasure to have you on and, and, uh, 
keep keep doing what you're doing. Um, you know, it, it makes a difference. And uh, and if in any small way my podcast can help get your message out, um, then uh, more than happy to do it. I appreciate it, man. I know you think this is reparations, but it's not. All right, John? This is not reparations. Because cause you have a little podcast now helping out black people. <laughs> no, nah, just trying to get the good word out, man. So, yeah. it's. It, I appreciate you, bro. Yeah, yeah. For us, it's always been about, um, you know, there's there's plenty. I always tell people, I'm like, they always ask, well, why, why do you have certain guests on? I'm like, man, they have a they have a megaphone. We're trying to give the the folks who like have really interesting things to say who don't have a megaphone at least right, a platform right. in our own weird way. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's just uh, it's all about trying to get as much good content out as possible and, and and show people that there are options in a world where they think there aren't. So, yes, sir, I love that, man. Yeah. Well, thanks again, man. Um, yeah, we got to do this again sometime. So. Yeah, we do for sure, for sure. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks. John was young and driven with a heart of gold Finished seminary, married, found a church he could call home Made a living, giving, dying folks a shoulder and a hand Until he told his lead that he had some feelings for another man and they said John you must go and take your broken heart and walk it to the door we know you're
I've seen. 